Well, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before we get started, just a reminder to sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca, where you get notification of all podcasts, blog posts, guest appearances, whatever else it might be. Now on to today's show. Today on the show, I have Mahima Podar, Senior Vice President of Digital Banking Strategy at Equitable Bank and in charge of EQ Bank. And I brought on the show today to talk about EQ Bank being a challenger bank and the experience in Canada of competing against the big boys. And with that, here's my interview with Mahima. Hello, Mahima. Hi, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Great today. So Mahima Podar of EQ Bank, tell us about EQ Bank. Sure. So EQ Bank is Canada's challenger bank. We're uh, really trying to disrupt the way that personal banking has been approached in Canada. And the way that we're doing that is a fabulous hybrid checking and savings account, completely digital platform. And again, the the premise is how can we give more value back to customers, let them earn more, let them save more, and do so as easily as possible. Excellent. So we'll come back to that. So tell me about your history and how you came to be where you are and, and get into the responsibilities you have. Yeah. Long time management consultant with Boston Consulting Group mostly in Toronto, but also in London. Admittedly, really loved my time there. I think it was a great uh, place to build out a toolkit. But after about eight years, was uh, looking for, I guess, the opportunity to actually do things versus opine on things. And so joined Equitable as the head of strategy and corporate development and really uh, was looking for an entrepreneurial culture that was small enough where I could really like make an impact and definitely... Uh, found that at Equitable, so I've been really excited to be part of this team. You decided to pick a flight with big banks, which is a uh, bold move in this country. So clearly, you chose the path of most resistance. So let's let's get into that. So Equitable was a traditional style bank, right, the bricks and mortar type, and basically got into the challenger bank space through EQ Bank. Tell me about the genesis of that decision and how it's panned out thus far. So I mean, it's interesting because Equitable is a more traditional FI, but they have always uh, had challenger. Premises. So very early on, the decision was made to never be bricks and mortar. So there's no branches. Everything is done through distribution, yep. through uh, mostly mortgage brokers or other financial partners or financial advisors. So it's really a B2B distribution business where we are trying to develop lending products that are serving needs that aren't well served by the big banks. So Equitable's main like beachhead product, if you will, is uh, single family residential lending in the alternative A space, which is mortgages that are just below where the big banks will underwrite. So mm-hmm. most of our customers are actually self-employed or business for self. So they might keep- Thank mortgage. you for that, by the way. Yeah, exactly. They do not make it easy. My goodness. That's exactly it. They don't make it easy. They don't understand it, but Equitable does, right? So how do we- develop underwriting standards that take into account all of the income that's actually sitting in an individual's corporation and work with them to get them a solution to fund a personal residence or an investment property. So that has really been where Equitable has been focused, but there wasn't any direct-to-consumer relationships because again, everything was done through brokers or other commercial partners. I clearly picked my description wrong. It wasn't so much bricks and mortar as what I meant was to say was traditional lines of business, less digitized uh, challenger banks. But yes, yeah, so please continue. Okay, so we have a fabulous burgeoning lending business. And then, of course, you need deposits to fund that lending business. So Equitable has traditionally been reliant on the financial advisor market for GICs. And so we're a top rate GIC uh, provider 
on Canex, uh, which is where we get the bulk of our deposits, but it became more and more important to us to build direct-to-consumer deposit relationships because those relationships tend to be more loyal and we can depend on the deposits more than if they, they're uh, through a third-party broker. And then admittedly, the regulator puts a lot more value on direct-to-consumer deposit relationships than it does through brokered deposit relationships. And so we decided that there was enough white space in the Canadian market uh, to do a direct-to-consumer digital-only bank, which is EQ Bank. And we're, we've been extremely happy with the success that we've seen. So as of about last month, we hit $4 billion in deposits. We have about 150,000 customers. And we've really seem to have like cracked the nut on something and filling a need for Canadians in terms of high value banking without the BS. Oh, I love that term because thank you. Thank you for acknowledging all the BS we put up with in this country. For those of you listening from outside of Canada, we live in a uh, oligopolistic five bank system where competition is something that just is not normal to our infrastructure, unfortunately. And if you want to hear more about that, you can also check out the other challenger bank in Canada I spoke with, which was um, which was Coho. And we can talk about, we like to have drinks and, and complain about large banks in this country. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like, I think uh, we're in a really interesting space because we have a successful lending business with Equitable Bank. And now we have a very successful deposit business with EQ Bank. And we're in a really good spot because those two entities can work together to create this ecosystem that makes us profitable and sustainable while being able to kind of challenge that status quo of Canadian banking. If you look at other models in the world, I think the fintech uh, deposit play is really hard to mm-hmm. be successful in if you don't have that lending side figured out. And so I think like even from a financial shareholder perspective, this combination of equitable bank and EQ bank is really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's logical, right? You're going to take money in, you have to pay interest on it. Where are you going to generate the operational income to pay that interest? Traditionally, it's always been lending on the back end. However, their lending game is far, far more restrictive than the deposit taking game. And plus, you need a distribution network for it. And to date, what we've typically seen is interchange fees being used to collect that revenue or foreign exchange fees or some other some other revenue line that subsidizes the other and takes advantage of low overheads in order to basically make it possible to have that money to pay out. So yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. You're, you have the, you definitely have the more traditional coupling of business model, but nothing but good things is, is all I hear about you. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's different, right? Because if you look at the big banks, they've been in the deposit game for what, like hundreds of years. And so when you go to open a bank account, it's like, what, branch, what ATM is closest to me, you probably opened that account when you were like, I don't know, 10, 15 years old, and it's wherever your parents bank. EQ Bank can't depend on those relationships. So we know that we have to offer something that's different than the big five, and that has been value. So it's, we are paying 1.7% on checking accounts. And again, you need to compare that to the 0% interest that the big banks are charging on, on checking accounts. And then to your point, they are adding fees to compensate for the cost of cash management. So you have a monthly fee. Before EQ Bank was on the scene, you were paying for e-transfers. You're paying for, in some cases, you're paying for checkbooks. You're paying for printing statements sometimes. You're paying for wire fees. And so all of those transactional fees add up and allow the deposit lines of business to be profit-generating entities themselves, whereas at EQ Bank, we're saying, how do we give more value to the customer? How do we be transparent? 
And how do we not nickel and dime the customer for every single thing that they're trying to do with us? So there is inherently like no fees, like zero monthly fees. E-transfers are completely free. We allow you to connect two of your bank accounts, uh, three, four, whatever number of bank accounts in Canada and transfer EFTs back and forth, check deposits, all free, bill pay. Even this notion of being able to earn interest on a transaction account is completely novel. The big banks have created this artificial construct where you have a savings account that earns interest and a checking account. Oh, I know. In order to earn interest, you're having to physically, not physically, but you have to move money from your checking account, savings account. And then if you want to use that money, you're you're moving it back and the, the interest stops accruing. And even in those savings accounts, that rate of interest is what? Five basis points, 10 basis well, points? Well, so several things to unpack for what you said here. And first off, again, and then you're aware of this, the, the term dark pattern in programming, where you make an option set that makes it difficult to do the thing that is to your best interest, but good for easy for their best interest, right? So, I mean, God forbid that those accounts actually have like an overflow function where, oh, if my checking account gets above five grand, it automatically moves to high interest savings, or better yet, just get rid of the BS anyway. Why do we need segregated accounts for the same person doing two different things? Like I get the mental accounting framework of, you know what, maybe I want to have, this is the money I don't touch, this is the money I do touch. I can't understand that, right? But for all intents and purposes, the fact that we have multiple accounts is dumb. And let's go back to high interest, which I do love, is, which is hilarious. Because currently, a very large bank with a blue color and a gold line, their high interest savings account is currently interest is currently advertised at a grand total of, I kid you not, five basis points. Five basis points. So the fact that they, you know, high compared to what? And then there was a, um, it was a recent uh, Twitter exchange I had because there was a, there's a bank in the U. Anyway, long story short, there was, you know, there was a discussion about is it possible we're going to see negative interest rates? And my argument was we already have them, right? Like if you look at the way the bank accounts are designed, right, at five basis points on high interest, zero on everything else, you even have a single bank fee whatsoever. That equates to a negative interest rate, right? So. When you actually think about it, like we're already there. We're already there, not in posted rates, but we're there in the design of the system itself. I think like another way to think about it too, like one of my pet peeves is another big bank has this very widely used account that says keep $5,000 minimum balance in this oh, account paid the $30 fee. What people don't realize is that $5,000 has a very real value tied to it that you're making zero interest on. And so yeah. effectively, like even at the lowest interest, you're paying $15 for that account. And then as soon as you go to $4,999, you will get dinged with a $30 fee and then you're stuck on the phone. So this is the other thing people do is they call the call center to get the fee waived because they've gone down by a dollar, but they've now wasted two hours doing that. Bingo. And then there's some sort of satisfaction in being given the money back that, oh, the bank did what was right by me. Well, the bank should have never put you in that position in the first place. And and what they're doing is they're basically making people make that mental trade-off of, do I spend two hours getting this fixed or do I accept it, right? Which to me is, again, another dark pattern. Now, the, God, it's just, I can go all day on this. And if you think 5,000 is bad, try opening up a business account in this country, right? Um, Like $30,000 minimums, right? Like, and I'm sitting there going like, I don't understand. I transact everything on my credit card. I have four deposits per month because everything's batched. I have a grand total of no more than 10 transactions per month. And you're telling me you're going to charge me $30 a month unless I keep $30,000 in the account? 
right? Like, please explain this math to me. Now that said, you know, any business should basically have working capital sitting around, right? And should be able to support itself. But, you know, there's no, and the thing is too, is they game this system because then they'll be like, oh, this, this account comes with this number of transactions. And then the higher the number of transactions, the higher the balance that has to exist. And it's just, it's just this nonstop game of basically of deceptive practices that don't actually attribute the actual cost. You know, you think you're making money, but you're really not. And in some banks, and I'll tell you, I'm going to end on this point. Some banks recently just abandoned that model altogether and said, you know what, we're done with this balance stuff. We're going to charge you a minimum of this price per month regardless, right? So now there's no business account that doesn't have a fee, a larger than life fee attached to it. Horrendous. So we've done a bunch of research on the small business uh, space in Canada, and there is such a need for a challenger bank mentality to attack what's happening. Funny, you should mention that. Maybe <laughs> if that's on my that's on my number one wish list for every challenger bank in Canada. Is please to God get me to break my corporate relationship with the bank because it is it is non like I get decent service for my business rep, but you know what? Not for what I pay for. Yeah, I mean, especially with the gig economy coming and you have all these contractors who you know like thirty thousand dollar minimum balance is not a reasonable request, and even like you've set up this corporation, like $30 a month doesn't make sense for the value that you're getting. So we would like EQ Bank would love to attack this issue. I'll be honest, the problem that we're having is how do we create a seamless experience to onboard small business clients when there's no one regulatory body that governs registries for small businesses. So you're going to every different province's registry, some of them are not digitized or available. And then you have to drill down to beneficial ownership. Like none of that is being made easy in Canada, which is also a topic for another day. But digital ID for both the yeah. consumers and small businesses is becoming more and more critical and something that I think the Canadian government really needs to address. Well, I'll say two things. First off, thank you for answering the question as to why this is not the case, because everybody else just says it's too hard and never gives me a reason. You've actually given me the reason. I appreciate that. But I will tell you this. I don't care about seamless. I just want out. I just, I don't care if I got to go dig up this paperwork and upload it. And I, like, I, I don't care. I just want out. And, and the thing is, is that that's the experience we already have with our current bank. So I will, the only advice I will give you is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good on this. Just get it up there and you will get business. Anyway, so, uh, and here's the, I mean, like you think about the other, you know, we have a perfect example of what goes wrong when you don't play in this system recently. And that's, that has to do with our COVID relief efforts in this country, where basically there was a $40,000 loan that was interest-free and partially forgivable available to any business owner. The problem was, and this is just grinding people to no end, is that you had to have a business banking account. Now, there are lots of gig economy workers, lots of people who are just contractors, people, even some people earning really good money, doctors, for instance, they didn't incorporate. If they incorporated, they would qualify. If they didn't incorporate, technically they're offside because they're not using a business banking. Like anyone who didn't have a business bank account was left out in the cold on that one. And you know what? The only response thus far is shrug. Eh. I mean, even from the flip side, as a lender, we have all these small business clients that we provide mortgages to. And so we wanted to get involved in the relief efforts. You couldn't participate as a lender unless you own the primary business banking relationship checking account. Wow. Yeah. It was like de facto only being 
executed by the big banks. And of course, they could kind of govern the experience around it. So you, so you kind of miss out on the innovation and speed to market around these things as well, because there's so many like protectionist movements within uh, Canadian banking. Oh, I've had this conversation about what happened with COVID on several occasions now, and no one is happy. No one is pleased on the Challenger Bank. It's like you, it was like, well, you guys are all new and we can't trust you. And it's like they could have gotten this stuff up and running so much faster than the traditional banks did. The application for the loan was relatively quick. I think it was two weeks they got it up. And I talked to people who have been like, I could have had that thing up in 48 hours. It was not hard. Right. And, you know, you think about in a time of need, this attitude of size equaling safety, which is pretty much we've been sold in this country forever. Man, this is this is coming up. This is a real axe grinding session for me. <laughs> uh, if you look at their models around the world, like I'm pretty sure the UK really depended on their challenger banks to provide innovation and relief around COVID and open banking has been a, a game changer in like the COVID realities in the UK. So I'm kind of surprised that the Canadian government would take that stance. Well, you know, they got, you know, when lobbyists basically show up every day telling about the trust you people, sooner or later, they just start wondering themselves. We can, I can, oof, okay, deep breath. I will just have, maybe I'll just have a special episode called, this is why Canada's, Canada's banking system sucks and just <laughs> go to town one day. I might do that. Anyway, all- let's, let's stop talking about the evil consortium that prevents you from actually getting stuff done. Let's talk about getting stuff done. So this is where you currently are. You guys are, you have a slick, seamless opening operating experience to basically set up an account, very consumer friendly, definitely more forward looking in terms of reducing of frictions for consumers. Tell me about, and this is interesting too, we discussed this earlier off air. Tell me about how you play nice with other with other vendors in the space in terms of like the other challengers out there. We can talk about examples for where that hasn't happened elsewhere in the system. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a really unique approach at EQ. We're very open and actually encourage fintech partnerships. So we have an exclusive partnership in Canada to do international money transfers via TransferWise, which is a kind of a unicorn fintech uh, based out of the UK that has, in my mind, is best of breed around international money transfer. Mm-hmm. So it's really been a full like API integrated product. So again, it's seamless for bank customers. The big advantage is that you can pull money directly from your EQ bank accounts and then fund international money transfers instantaneously. So right now I can go to the platform, pull money out of my EQ bank account and send it to India and it takes 30 seconds. I send money to the US, again, 30 seconds, like more than 30% of the transactions are instantaneous. And if it's not instantaneous, it will tell you how long it will take to get there, but it, it's literally um, less than one day in the vast majority of cases. So, I mean, what's interesting is we look for these best of breed fintech partnerships that we can bring onto the EQ Bank platform. Whereas our experience in Canada has been that the more traditional FI institutions kind of balk at the idea of integrating with fintechs and will actually go out of their way in some cases to shut down success of these fintechs um, by mm-hmm. limiting access or not preventing bill pay or suggesting that they're not a suitable vendor. And also in some cases, they they won't even provide Canadian business bank accounts to these fintech or money service providers. Jesus. So- <laughs> like literally that so that that extent, they're trying to literally cut them out at the foundation as to say, oh, you're gonna come in and compete with us. Well, maybe you can't get a bank account. Like this is Am I dealing with the mafia here? I don't understand. Like I had not heard that story yet. Like that for the record, that is the first time. Yeah, I mean, so money service providers have had quite a difficult time in Canada. It's under the guise of AML, so anti-money laundering regulations. So 
the banks have liability to ensure that money laundering is not happening. If the money is moving through a money service provider, then how will the banks get transparency and ensure that that's not happening? But of course, like a lot of these money service providers, like a PayPal or TransferWise, they are also like great innovators around financial services. And so the Canadian population is at a disadvantage because time and time again, we need to rely on the same six, five, six entities that look relatively the same. And there's there's no push for them to increase the bar around innovation and customer experience. Oh, there isn't. And unfortunately, we're falling woefully behind, painfully, painfully behind. And the only one paying for it is the Canadian consumer. I mean, I hadn't heard the thing about the bank account opening, and that's just making me absolutely sick <laughs> to my stomach. The more famous one recently is Revolut, having recently come into Canada in a, in a very light way, just testing the waters. Revolut being, I think, still by deposit taker, deposit is the largest neobank in the world, to my understanding. We're pretty close to it. And they very quickly, the banks turned around and said, oh, you, you want to send money from, from your bank account to them? Oh, no, that's going to cost you. No, no, that's going to cost you. Right. And it's like, what? Like, like so I want to send money from RBC to BMO or to any one of the other consortium jerks. And I have no issue, but I want to send it to someone else. And now you're dinging me how much? Actually, take a step back. Like there is actually no easy way for you to send money from RBC to BMO. Like you're only- well, on- No, I, I, meant, I, meant, I meant fee. There's still issues. Like they're still like, oh my God, you want to send, oh, 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 you want to give, you want to give to those guys? Oh yeah. So here's a, some glass on the floor, crawl across that on your belly. Like they, they, I have this saying when it comes to the podcast over and over again, there's a couple of things that come up and I haven't said this in a while, but friction is not a way to keep your, your clients. Friction is a way to piss them off and guarantee that when they see a better way, they're going to leave. Yeah. But in Canada, are they really going to leave? Like we have a very complacent population that is generally satisfied with the services that the big banks are providing. Well, and I think the millennials may be the difference here. Right. Like the polls all show that they have no respect for the bank brand. They have no loyalty to the bank brand. They want everything to be Apple-esque in its experience. And when they get told you have to show up at a physical location and do something like what? Right. So millennials who are listening to this, stay demanding. You're not entitled. You're right. That's all I can tell you. When it comes to financial services, you're not being entitled. You're right. Like you are. This, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, I really hope that you're right. My impression is like you have some maverick millennials who are first movers on these kind of things, but the vast majority of people in Canada are still... Um, I know, I hate lemmings. <laughs> <laughs> We're all acting like lemmings. And uh, I mean, this is, yeah. I, I, uh, the old, my old saying is we all complain about our banks, but then we line up to give them money. And then even though we don't necessarily like the relationship, we're eh, okay with it. And then, but everybody loves to buy, talk about buying their stock to get paid a dividend to which I equate to great. Let me steal a hundred dollars from you and then give you a $5 box of chocolates every year. And you're going to love me for it. It makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, I, we were talking about this before, but I feel like as a shareholder, I totally get it. We have the most profitable banks in the world in Canada. And when you look at the return on equity and the the dividend and the dividend growth of these stocks, like I totally understand why shareholders invest in the big banks in Canada. I do think like the reality though, is that the Canadian big banks will always have a role to play in Canadian banking. I mean, I think they are the crux of the infrastructure. When push comes to shove, the regulators can come in and leverage the big banks to push the programs that they need. So they are like- a- They're always going to be there, but should they should they basically gouge us to a degree 
that is unseen anywhere else in the world, short of short of fascist sort of dictatorships, right? Like that's 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 my point. And I've said this before because it's come up many times. When you look at the concept of the critical revolution in banking and moving to open banking and, and providing them just being back in infrastructure for any number of future contenders and pushing off the marketing and client relationships up to them because frankly the banks suck at that anyway. I keep thinking, I keep saying like if one just did that. If one of them got there first, oh my God, the lucrative advantage that would be. But they don't want to kill the goose to lay the golden egg that is the Canadian consumer. Yeah, they're not going to like eat into their profit pools to be able to do this. And I think that the other unfortunate reality is that it's not a level playing field in Canada. So even if, let's say, open banking allows data mobility in Canada, which would be fantastic, and then you have fintechs innovating on top of the open APIs, the reality is that the capital required for the banks so like the the dcibs in canada the there is favorable capital treatment as well as like infrastructure treatment for the big banks that will make them lower cost than any other entity in canada yeah they'll always have that advantage i think where they don't have the advantage potentially in the future is simply consumer relationship right like when you, it's this entire thing of when you market to everybody, you technically market to no one. There's definite niches that can be carved out of consumers that if infrastructure plays are there that allow lower cost implementation of challenger banks and whatnot, I think it's easier for someone to come along and, and find their niche and cater to that niche, rather than be regional or cross experience, right? So I think that there's there's opportunity there, How and they, and they could serve the purposes of being the back end. They will always have an advantage based on size. No one's going to debate that, but it's the, my bigger concern is that we get the experience that we had initially in Europe. Up, which is, oh, you want me to give this all up? Well, here's the loophole. You didn't tell me how. So I'm giving you the information, but oh my God, is it is it really hard? Someone once told me about it was a, it was a regulatory disclosure that a um, that was that was for securities shops, and they had to disclose like all their trading throughout the I think it was like all their trading throughout the day, and they basically decided to give them one giant that one giant text file. <laughs> Like making it like the like here it is, by the way, have fun parsing this data, right? Like so I, I have no doubt that if my concern with open banking is that if we're not very careful about telling them exactly what they have to do, they'll be like, Oh, we could do it in this way that makes it difficult for everybody. Guess what we're gonna do? Right. right. I think we definitely need uh, regulatory oversight. With my biggest concern is we enable data portability, but if we're not careful, the big banks or whoever can prevent you from using the data to move your business to a competitor. And you know, uh, so data portability issue, and I've had this argument, I've literally been in the room with people from the banks when they've said the most grotesque thing possible, which is it's our data, to which my response was read goddamn PEPIDA, which is the Privacy Act, and basically specifically buried in there, it is the consumer has the, the right to request all information that, the, that that institution has at any point in time because it is they are entitled to it's their data. So the reality is we already have access under the law currently. Just that law does not, it was around privacy and does not spell out and access rights, does not spell out how we get access and that's how they're getting away with it. But this is the mentality they have internally. It's their data, which is just vulgar. Yeah, I mean, some of the reforms that are being proposed by ISAD and Minister um, Baines in the digital charter would be a big win. Uh, it would be exactly reforms to Pupita to enable access and portability. So for anyone listening, as much as uh, this is probably not on your radar, like continue to push your local regulators on, or government officials on this to get some attention on it. Uh, if only it was something more hot button for these people. You know, for, for a nation of people who travel so much around the world, uh, we really don't take a look at what the financial infrastructure, you know, we go, we go look at the wonderful sites that we visit. We never stop to look at the financial infrastructure in some of these countries and say, you guys can do that. It costs what? Like I'm waiting for Visual Capitalist, which if you have guys haven't discovered that, it's a wonderful website for infographics that come out every day 
on different topics regarding finance altogether. And they recently had one on telecom rates across the world. And it was like basically it's two axes, like good versus bad service in terms of speed and then high versus low cost. And guess where Canada was? We were in the worst quadrant. We were in the worst quadrant by a long shot. And it was like, it was like by a wide margin. It was really bad. And then I keep on waiting for the Canadian banks, for them to look do this for the Canadian banks. If you're listening, please start working on this. It's like revenue extracted per citizen in this country and general level of satisfaction and see what it looks like. Because I'm, I'm willing to bet that we are going to be in the quadrant of death yet again. Yeah, I, but like, again, it, it's complacency, right? So when so we look at like net promoter score as a measure of how satisfied our customers are. And from our take, we are best in class in Canada. And it is about five times better than what we see at the big banks, but still like switching banking services in Canada is still like less than 3% a year. So what- Well, I mean, it's funny because it's the same thing in the financial advisory world where you see surveys where it's like one in four Canadians says that they're willing, that they're looking to maybe change their financial advisor to which I say like, no, they're not. Because if that was the case, the entire industry would turn over in four years. And we just, we don't see, like the industry as a whole does not see that kind of friction. If it did, you'd have advisors basically leaving the industry in droves nonstop because the bad ones get pushed out, right? It's, there's complacency. I think, I think part of it comes down to, you might be better at the old game. That's what it is, right? You're better at the old game in a digital realm, but there hasn't been a paradigm shift in banking sufficient to basically say like, oh my God, this is like the emergence from the feature phone to the smartphone. It was an order of magnitude difference, right? And that was just going to drive adoption. Whereas digital online banking is not that kind of magnitude shift, but complacency is a major, major issue. Okay. So like players like EQ Bank, and obviously I'm a bit biased here, but our average consumer is making $500 by just switching their everyday bank account. So, so this is the thing. And you're not having to offer them $500 up front or a free iPad or a free toaster. Or I even joked recently, you know, if they really want to start bringing in millennials, they'll start offering free avocado toast. The reality is you're not doing this with incentives to basically get them in the door. You're doing that. You're actually rewarding the ones who are with you. Right. That is a big premise of our value proposition is we will not use promotional rates. It's fantastic interest rate for every dollar, every day, every customer. If you look at what some of our counterparts do, it's like 2.5% interest for the first three months, and then it goes down to 20 basis points. Well, yeah, which if you do the math on that over the course of the year, you may as well just have the account at like whatever it was, like less than 1% for the entire year, right? It's just the old, here's a posted annual rate, but you don't actually collect that for the year game. It's just, just drives me nuts. So it's like, right, it's that transparency, it's that honesty, and that's really what we're trying to push to offer something different. And to your point, I think, I mean, we are definitely trying to do it differently and better for Canadians. Even if consumers don't end up joining the EQ Bank platform, we're trying to drive enough change that has corresponding effects where the big banks will wake up and start to make changes on the margin. So for example, EQ Bank was the first to make e-transfers free after about six mm -hmm. months we saw the big banks follow and now there's this idea that e-transfers are or at least some e-transfers are included in your uh, banking package and so thank you for that because that was one of the big grievances i had altogether was let me get this straight so to send someone something by email like just the only way i have of near frictionless transit of money between individuals and you want to ding me was it a dollar fifty to two fifty per per transaction like this is vulgar like on, on if you think about the volume of that business that was going through and how much of a revenue line that was for them oh my god so thank you very much for challenging them there. That's kind of what we see as our bigger purpose here is like, how can we drive positive change to shift the value equation away from the institution and back to the individuals? Our biggest challenge is how do we get enough awareness among Canadians? And admittedly, COVID has really helped. So we've seen 
150% increase in signups. We were at about 100 signups a day pre-COVID. Now we're over 400 a day like that to us is pretty, like it's been obviously very impressive growth for us, but it is a sign that Canadians are starting to become more value conscious and realize that there's better options available. I mean, the reality is I've always found the Canadian experience amusing of they're like, oh, I went to CIBC. I was dealing with CIBC and oh, I got so pissed off at them. So I moved to BMO. It's just like, <laughs> oh, like you move to a different flavor of vanilla. I don't understand why you think they're different. Like the logo might be different, but like, and that's, that's the funny challenge. Take any Canadian bank, change the colors, change the logos when you walk into a branch and you would never tell the difference. Right. They're all the same. <laughs> like, a lot of people realize that. That's why they're like, what's the point in switching? I'm just going to get more of the same. That's the thing is, is that's, that's kind of the insidious part of it is they've all made them. So it's like, they've all made it out to be, we're all the same level of crap, right? <laughs> you really don't have any options here. Like, why are you going to bother moving? Don't, don't, like, it's just, it's insidious. But when you start looking, you know, when, when you take the time to actually educate yourself for five minutes, you see that there are other ways. Exactly. So we're hoping that uh, more and more Canadians wake up and kind of take the, take the plunge because it doesn't, uh, I think they'll find it's seamless and you end up earning and saving a lot more. Great. And it's funny because you have, what I find amusing too, is that you have the major banks who have their, their versions of challengers or their versions of alternative banks, right? Typically ones that were independent before, but then got taken over. So you have, you have Tangerine, which used to be ING in Canada, and you have Simply, which used to be PC Financial. And on the surface, the experience is very different. And you talk to the people who work internally, like, oh, no, no, we're not like the bank. It's just like, give me a break. I don't care if you're the offshoot of the Empire from Star Wars. You're still part of the Empire from Star Wars. Like, they're, you know, the stormtroopers still walk the halls. I don't understand, right? Okay, so I want to make sure that we don't just rip on banks. Your value prop, treating everyone fairly, looking for ways to enhance consumer experience, frictionless as much as possible, work playing nice with other with other vendors and actually paying consumers a posted a fair rate at all times and not trying to lure them in with a free television that's only available to new consumers and saying if you're an existing customer, we're not going to give you squat. Right. Like that's that's basically the relationship that they're currently so am I missing anything here? What else do you do that's awesome? I think it's a good summary. It's great value, no BS. Value is high interest rates, low fees or no fees in 99% of the cases. And we make it easy to work with. So transparent and low friction. And it's in everything that we try, everything that we do is built around that ethos. Excellent. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everyone to end on a positive note and make you think. Uh, The first one is if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? You may have covered it already. I would wish for regulatory oversight to make open banking a requirement by 2022. Yes, I, I too wish that regulation would take the look of protecting the consumer and not the incumbents much more than they do. Because unfortunately, the Canadian Banking Association is a very powerful lobby, but the who's lobbying on behalf of the consumer for fairness with banking? Honestly, who is, right? Yeah, I mean, like individual people are not staying up at night worrying about the financial services industry or open banking and portability of data. And so we definitely need consumer advocates at the table that are pushing for this. And right now we like, we don't have many. Yep. And if they are, they're, they're usually individuals, not large organizations. And I I want anyone consumer, any consumer listeners think of the way the banks treat us as a different form of taxation, because that's essentially what it is only a private form of taxation. And I once, and I'm going to, I'm going to add one more grumble about the banks. I once had a interesting exchange with someone at a bank where we went over, went over the fact that they don't lend to small business now, essentially unless BDC is backing it. They don't lend to 
quote unquote risky mortgages unless the Canadian consumers backing it. They really, you know, people think the banks are in, in the business of taking risk. They are absolutely not in the business of taking risk. They take no risk whatsoever. To which my response was, then why haven't we just nationalized you yet? Because I don't understand. If the taxpayer, if you're too big to fail, if your loans are backed by the by the taxpayer, if everything's backed by the taxpayer at the end of the day, why are we allowing private profit off of this? It makes it's starting to make very little sense to me. So anyway, that's my little spiel there. And they basically looked back at me silently and said, I don't know what you want me to say to you. Just acknowledge, <laughs> just acknowledge that the farce, how much of a farce this entire thing is. So next question for you. What's been the biggest challenge in getting EQ Bank to where it is today? I think the biggest challenge has been, actually, I, I'm torn because one has been the unfair playing fields, for example. We have tried to get a uh, debit card out for our customers using the Interact uh, platform. But the reality is, unless you have had that infrastructure stack set up for hundreds of years, or not hundreds of years, but like tens of years, like the big banks, it is essentially unaffordable for a smaller player to participate in that platform. So that has been quite challenging. I think the other piece is really, how do we get better customer awareness of what we're trying to do? It's definitely picking up. And I think we're doing a really good job. I think we have a phenomenally better product than the alternative. And given that, I'm still surprised that we're not seeing huge market share shifts to players like EQ Bank. Complacency is a dangerous thing, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. What's odd to me too is that the Canadian consumer, when it comes to banking and financial services, as all the media out there is about hyper awareness of what they're paying, right? And and there's a lot of obfuscation of that. But you know, especially in my business, there's a lot of I won't say sensitivity. But there's a lot of awareness. We were very open about it, but there, we do encounter a lot of sensitivity to it. And the average Canadian does what they can to avoid bank fees to some degree. But at a certain point, I feel like they just tap out because they feel like it's all the same. I think we need more success. We need more success stories like yours, gaining a lot more momentum, so that people start understanding that. Sorry, you're telling me this is the way it is. It doesn't have to be that way. Oh, and I'll, I'll share one other story. When I basically closed down a major bank account, and I basically I went in there. It was funny. So it was CIBC, and I was dealing with Simply at the time because originally a PC customer. And they're like, "Oh, is there anything we can do to get you to keep this account?" I was like, "No, I'm moving it to Simply." And they're like, "The person got in trouble." I was like, "Damn it!" Because they knew they were beat. And I'm sitting there going like. Thinking to myself, like, maybe you think this is amusing because this is your job, but you just, you knew I was better off somewhere else, but you still try to keep it. I would love to see, uh, can you imagine how different a world would be if everyone working at a branch had some sort of fiduciary responsibility? My God. <laughs> <laughs> the lawsuits would be never ending, but anyway, this is what it is. I talked to my colleagues at uh, Well Simple, and when you look at their customer base, there is huge portions of their customer base that are employees at the big banks. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, I, I have friends over there too. <laughs> it's, yeah, I get it. And the sad thing is, is that I'm willing to bet a lot of those people are responsible for pushing people into high-priced mutual funds that are proprietary. This is this is what happens when you design it. They know, they know, I mean, uh, deep breath. Okay, moving on. So anyone who's not, anyone who's listening to this for the first time is not really aware of just how bad it is. Like, we are not making this up. Like, we are just skimming the top of just how bad it is. So learn more if you can, please. Last question is, what? and this is a positive one, thankfully, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you out of bed in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight every day against the you know, the empire? So you know, you're know, you in the Millennium Falcon, the empire is literally trying to build the Death Star. What motivates you? I love getting the feedback that we do from our customers. It is so positive. It is so game-changing, if you will, like the idea that I didn't think there was a better way. Like this has completely changed the way that I think about finances. 
even if you read on social media, if anyone is ever to say anything slightly off about EQ Bank, so many of our customers come to our rescue in such a genuine way that it is just extra reinforcement that we're doing the right thing and we're driving impact by giving Canadians better choice. So that is what continues me and the the whole organization on this path. And I love what we have coming on the roadmap. Like I think everything we do needs to be different and more innovative and better than the big bank alternative. So it is forcing us to constantly push the boundaries of what is possible in Canada. And I think by doing that, like we're, we're fundamentally making the landscape more innovative and a better customer experience for the average consumer. Excellent. Well, thank you for fighting good fight uh, against the dark overlords that basically uh, that, that keep us down. I appreciate that. Everyone highly encourage you to take a look at EQ and the alternatives that exist in this country. The more they've, I, I keep on, I've said it before, the only way they're ever going to learn is that they bleed, unfortunately. It is what it is. Anyway, Nahima, thank you so much. I appreciate it very sincerely. Great talking to you. Thanks. Take care. That was my interview with Mahima and Podar of EQ Bank. As you can see, we both have some access to grind <laughs> the way uh, the Canadian financial industry works. And frankly, if more people knew the way it works and saw the way things happen and the profits that are extracted from us, I think more people would have problems. But I highly encourage everybody to please check them out. They are a wonderful alternative to your traditional bricks and mortar bank. So until next time, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really does help people discover the podcast. Thank you and take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.